This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. This is a B2B podcast, so I can share right now that if you're not using inbound and outbound combined, you're doing yourself a massive, massive disservice. Outbound, especially right now in this virtual world, outbound is crushing it, crushing it, crushing it. That's my two cents. Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Hey everyone, welcome back to B2B Growth Hacks. We are in our Innovator Die series and I've got a great guest on today. Today, I'm gonna to be speaking with Charles Gaudet. He's the CEO and founder at Predictable Profits and host of the Beyond Seven Figures podcast. Charles, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you do and a little bit about Predictable Profits. Sure. Well, I guess to really understand me, we're going to have to go a little back to the beginning, to the grassroots. I've been an entrepreneur since the age of four, never had a traditional quote-unquote real job. After graduating from college, I started a business nominated by Ernst & Young as being one of the nation's best seed stage companies. By 24, I created my first multi-million dollar business. From that point, I continued to build and grow a number of different companies, Until 2010, somebody offered to pay me to help them grow theirs. That's when I started Predictable Profits. And uh, since then, we've taken several companies over to the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies list. And typically, we're working with clients who are asking themselves, what do we need to do to grow faster? Or some months are fees, some months are famine. How do we create more predictability or consistency in our revenue? Or the third one is, look, the company's far too dependent on me. What needs to happen to take the company to the next level? And we work with some of the brightest, most intelligent, hardest working entrepreneurs on the planet. Because of that, I guess uh, I'm the, one of the luckiest guys in the world. I get to work with some really, really great, smart people, learn from them, hopefully as much as they learn from me. Love that. And we indeed are hoping to learn a little from you. I want to start by just diving into kind of your personal journey as a CEO and founder. You're not new to this. And surely you've got some challenges that have come along the way and even maybe that you might still be dealing with today. Talk us through some of the challenges as a CEO and founder that you've experienced. Well, I think the most recent challenge that people can look at is 2020 and what happens, right? And I've been in this business for a long time, been an entrepreneur for a long time. 2020 was what's known as an inflection point. An inflection point means anything that happened before doing business, we have to reevaluate and look at to see how much of it still applies after that inflection point. In my lifetime, there's been five. We had 1987, 2000, 2001, 2008, and then now. Those five different inflection points. And so when we look at challenges, those so happen to be one of the biggest macro challenges that we've been forced with. In 2020, we immediately had to stop and ask ourselves, okay, we're going to have to adjust. Do we change the message to meet the market? Do we change the market to meet the message? Or do we change both the market and the message? 
And the companies that were quick to say, okay, what do I have to do to adjust? How do I evolve in this market? Took advantage of it and boom, captured more market share while everybody else was struggling and they were doing the opposite. Instead of trying to figure out where's the opportunity right now, they're saying, okay, let's lay off people, let's cut our marketing budget, let's tighten our belts and let's go sit in the corner and wait until things turn around. Didn't work out for a lot of people. So that was the biggest challenge and of course, Look, every single morning I wake up, there's one thing that I'm going to know, and that is that I'll be faced with another challenge. The difference, though, is that we can look at challenges and frame it in a number of different ways. We can look at challenges and we can say, this is a problem and problems are bad and I want to run away from my problems and so be it. Or you can look at problems and frame it differently. And say, okay, what this problem is doing is highlighting an opportunity for us to improve, for us to make our processes better, for us to train better, for us to market better, for us to do whatever that is. And if you're in a company that's growing real fast and you're not having challenges presented to you every single day, the only thing that I could say is you're not working hard enough. Woo! That is it. That's it. That every day you are going to meet challenges. And no matter how hard you fight to keep things the same, if you're growing, you're actually committing to facing challenges every single day. So you learn to love challenges. And the challenge that I encountered recently that I wouldn't even have, well, I guess I could have anticipated given all the events is I got COVID. And COVID took me out for two weeks. And then it took me a while to get back into the full swing of things. Fortunately, though, as a company, we did a dry run before that. And that dry run was I took off to Hawaii for a couple weeks. And so we had to make sure that the company was not dependent on me, that the company could run without me while I was on vacation. And any areas that required me to be there, we made sure that we put processes, systems, technologies, whatever else had to be in place, people, whatever had to be in place to ensure that should Charlie not be around for two weeks, that's okay. The company can thrive. And we do that with every one of the key people inside of our company. They go off on vacation and we say, okay, look, you go on vacation. We don't want you checking emails. We don't want you logging in, responding to whatever. We need to figure out where the company is dependent on you so we can build the necessary processes and systems to reduce that dependency and ensure we can scale. You've hit on so much here. I've read about this first, exactly what you're talking about, taking out key people and filling key roles and and trying to see what things happen. And at some point, you have to take that leap, knowing that there's going to be some things you didn't think about before. And actually, the first book I read about it was in Profit First by Mike McLewitz. He talks through the entrepreneur journey and how to really set this up over an 18-month period. So just a note for the audience, I'll link that in the show notes for you. But if you're interested on diving in on how to do that, that's a great starting point. But I couldn't agree with Charles Moore that it's absolutely a necessary thing that you have to do. Otherwise, the company becomes so dependent on you. Can I just jump into that one second real quick? for sure. For sure. So... One of the things that we're always looking at when we go to build a business, a lot of people will say, I want to build a business. So, you know, they try to learn from different people. They just need to understand who they're actually learning from. When we figured out and as we built the methodology, one of the things that we really focused in on are what are the billion dollar companies doing? What are the nine figure companies doing? 
what are the companies that are growing fast? What are some of the strategies that we can borrow and integrate into small business and, and see how that scales? And I remember having a meeting with the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. It may even be a trillion dollar company at this point. And she was telling me how she was taking off and going to France. And I'm looking at everything that's going on in her company. And her company is expanding and they're in the news all the time. And I'm like, I don't understand. How are you actually going away with all this stuff? And she said, it's a job requirement. I have to do this. If I don't go away for two weeks, I get fired. I said, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure I understand. I mean, I just read the news about this and that. You're building new headquarters. And I'm confused. And she said, realize that the reason why it's a job requirement for me to go away every two weeks is because when I go away, the company then learns where the company is dependent on me. And they always Mm -hmm. have that. They have to build the systems, the processes, the team around making sure that the company is not dependent on me. And we do that with all of our leadership to make sure that the company can survive and scale. And I thought about that and I'm like, what a brilliant idea. Back in the day, as I was building my company, if I took off two weeks, my whole company would have just imploded. (laughs) The idea of me going away for two weeks is just would have been absurd. I mean, I was the cook, the bottle washer, everything. But over time, it's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to try something. I'm going to just take Friday off. And actually, in the very beginning, it was not even I'm going to take Friday off. In the very beginning, it was I'm going to take this afternoon off. Yep. (laughs) Just to see what would happen. And then it was, I'm going to take Friday off. And then it was, maybe I'm going to take Friday and Monday off and see what happens. And then eventually you start to build that confidence. But when you have the right people, and I've been blessed with really attracting some wonderful, wonderful people in the organization, that I know if crap ever really hit the fan, I'm only a cell phone call away. It's not like I'm not going to answer my cell phone because somebody needs help. I just have the faith and the trust and the people that we put in a place to say, if it doesn't work out, if these metrics start going, of course, that they'll call me. Yeah. And to your point, it's empowering and preparing your people. They at some point are hoping to promote or go to higher levels in the company. And the only way they can do that is to learn and to be trusted to manage different areas of the business as they progress. So it's so invaluable. And in case you didn't hear that one, guys, that's the first one. Write it down. All right. What are you (laughs) doing in your company to make sure that it's not dependent on people? And this is just one of the gems. Charles is going to break this down so much better for us as we continue to talk about the strategy behind and kind of the predictable profits method. But before we get there, Charles, how do you approach sustainability and strategy as a CEO, as a founder, when you're thinking about the business, how are you strategizing on your company to kind of see these blind spots that we run into, maybe like this one? That's a great question. Well, this one about the scalability element of things That became abundant to me because, believe it or not, an employee was the one that called me out on it first. He, quote unquote, fired me and asked me to put faith in him to run the company while I was gone because he wanted the power. He wanted to prove himself. Yeah. And I had enough faith in him that I took him up on that word. And lo and behold, when I came back, the company was better off having me gone than actually in the seat every day. So it's amazing what can happen there. 
But in terms of growth, when we talk about sustainability, and I'm really, really happy, Sarah, that you brought up sustainability, because most people think of growth by just that growth. And it's about a grow at all costs type of mentality. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the actual data of the companies that are solely focused on growth, there's a study performed by the Kauffman Foundation, and they found that 66% of companies that get listed on the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies list within five to eight years or get disadvantages they sold, shrink in size, or go out of business. And the reason why that is, is because when you leverage momentum, momentum takes off, the business starts growing really, really fast. But at some point, it grows faster than the leader's ability to lead that company, to grow with it. And so then eventually the company starts to plateau. If the leadership still can't pull it up, momentum changes directions, it moves downwards, and it's kind of like catching a falling knife. You have to be really, really skilled to be able to turn a downward momentum company back into growth mode. And sustainability comes in multiple different forms, but metaphorically speaking, the way that I look at it is, let's say we're in a boat and we're on calm waters and we're moving at 30 miles an hour. At that point in time, everything seems great and seems awesome. But now as we start leaving the river and we're going into the ocean, we decide we're going to pick up speed, we're going to move faster, and the waves are going to get rougher. As those waves get rougher and as our business starts growing, as the boat starts moving faster, what happens is you begin to see different fractures in the hull because it's the first time the hull gets really, really tested. A CEO that's solely focused on growth is going to be doing nothing but keeping his eyes out in front of him and just plowing forward. A CEO that's focused on sustainable growth is going to be looking at different KPIs in the dashboard, is going to be looking to figure out where are the fractures in my hull. If you tend to a fracture, you can solve the issue quickly and continue to move forward. If you ignore them, those fractures turn into holes, and those holes take on water and eventually can sink the boat. And that's what Mm -hmm. we see with the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies list is 66% of those. So it's about having not only the skills to be able to move to a higher level, it's about having that awareness and realize that what got you to where you were, which oftentimes we'll see companies maybe go to about one to three million. Predominantly, their strategies are based on largely action, meaning one calorie in, they get one calorie out, or a lot, a lot of hard work. There's very little systems or processes. Most of the business is brought to the table by word of mouth and referrals. So there's no scalable marketing and sales systems. That's where we really, really tend to see they get to about one to three million. They're really, really starting to plateau and they're like, what needs to happen? And they're not realizing like the, some of the changes that need to happen. They're starting to take on water. They just don't realize where it is or how to fix it. And there's this transition that will take them from that growth to sustainable growth. And we have companies working with us that are $250 million and beyond. And, and even still, they may be taking on water, but they're just not used to looking in the same areas in the business that they've been looking on before. So, you know, sustainability is not just moving forward. It's also about those fractures in the boat. And, and if I may, and you get, see, the thing is, is I get all ADD. You get me talking about this stuff. I get so excited I hear you. that I can't shut up. But sustainability comes in multiple forms, right? It comes in the form of you want to have multiple scalable marketing and sales systems. You don't want all of that relying on just one thing. The other thing is that growth actually happens largely in three phases. You start with optimization, then you move to systemization, and then innovation. You don't just go from 
one strategy to another strategy to another to another. It's a very strategic approach. Okay, I'm done talking now. You can look at us next question. <laughs> where I was going, I mean, that's really where I was going is what is the approach? And I think you, especially as entrepreneurs and CEOs, we all kind of have that a, a little bit of attention deficit that we see a new strategy or we see an opening and we want to plow towards that because we think it's the answer. So can we dive into each one of those yeah. optimization, systemization and innovation? Let's start with optimizing your business. What does that look like? So at the very basic level, you want to look at, okay, what's working and what's not working. The only way to know what's working and what's not working is we need to put data behind it. We have to be able to get rid of all the guesswork and be very, very specific at whatever that KPI is. We have to look for something specific and measurable in order for us to decide what's working and what's not working. And then once you figure that out, it's like, okay, how do we do more of what's working and less of what's not working? And it's so funny because optimization for most people just doesn't sound sexy. They want really the, the strategy, right? But when you look at the number of companies that we've taken to the Inc. 5000 and so forth, and you dive deep into the strategies that we've used, most of the companies that we've taken on that Inc. 5000, they got there still in the optimization phase. We hadn't even gone to the next phase, the systemization or the innovation phase. So optimization, it's like throwing rocket fuel on a fire. You can really, really, really do some amazing things when you know where to look to move the needle and then how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to systemization, what does that look like at the basic level? How are we approaching that or how should we be approaching that? The first thing that I look at is return on time. So where am I spending the most amount of time in my business doing repetitive tasks. And then we'll start building a system around making sure that my time is more free. The same thing with where in the business is the company dependent on certain people. And so we ask them to build processes around that. You build a culture of building systems so that everybody knows that when they're doing something, they have to build a system and so forth. Now, as an entrepreneur, one of the problems that we often encounter is when we tell somebody to build systems, they're like, oh my gosh, I don't have enough time right now to go to the bathroom. I can't even imagine like sitting there and creating all these systems. So you create one system in your business. And that one system is the system for creating systems. And then <laughs> one of the things that I do personally is I will create a video. And as I go through something, I'll create a video and I'll record it for my assistant and I'll say, hey, here's what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. I'll send it to my assistant and ask him to create a system around it. And then he creates a system around what I'm doing and then creates the checklist. And then either he does the work or we're able to delegate the work. And then after that, it's just a matter of making sure that the system is being followed. I love that. It's funny, my co-founder and partner, Ray, he's a big proponent of making short videos because things are changing so fast. Sometimes people get tied up in making these large, lengthy Word documents and the system is changing so fast that you now have wasted so much time doing that. So instead, he really kind of uses the same method that you do within our business for himself is making short videos, screen recordings, things like that to show our customers even how to do things because we're in the audio and production side of things. And so it really has become 
momentously helpful for a couple reasons too. I think that one, like you said, scalability, it's quick, it's easy. It allows somebody to easily be able to create a system off of, but also I think people's learning style is changing. The way that we're consuming content is different. It's such a waste of time. It feels like at this point to read through a 50 page manual when you have tools available like video recording, screen recording, and YouTube. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. So moving on to innovation, you mentioned something that you recommend to companies as part of their innovation strategy. And before you guys revolt when he says what he says, let him finish. (laughs) Tell us about how you recommend people innovate and what that entails. Well, innovation, again, when we're looking at some of the fastest, most consistently growing companies in the world, One of the things that we look at or that we've identified is they're building out one new profit center at a minimum once per quarter. So most people, when they think about how am I generating business right now, again, it comes to word of mouth and referrals. But when we look at some of these other companies, they might say, okay, this quarter we're going to focus on building out a channel partner strategy or a partnership strategy or an affiliate marketing strategy, whatever that is. Another one, they might go, you know what, we're going to focus on a retargeting strategy. We're going to focus on building out outbound and, and so forth or inbound. And, and inbound and outbound really by itself aren't a strategy. All it is a label because outbound has multitude of different strategies inside of outbound. Inbound has multitude of different strategies inside of inbound, but they'll deploy one new strategy a quarter. Innovation also is about remaining relevant with your market. One of the best companies in the world that a really, really wonderful job at this is Disney World. And every year, the theme changes. It might be the celebration for whatever. It could be the party of whatever. Whatever it is, they give people a reason why you have to go to Disney again next year because next year is another celebration and then the year after is another celebration. And so they're remaining relevant. And so... We've done this with one particular client. He had a product that he had been running for a number of decades. Same product over and over and over and over again. Sales were starting to remain stale and we said, you know what, or starting to become stale and we said, you know what, people have seen this product over and over again. Let's reshoot the videos that you have marketing this product. Let's relabel it. Let's put a fresh package on it. Let's do everything and see what happens. And just that one thing ended up adding several million dollars to his bottom line within just a few months. People are never really that interested in what's old with you. People keenly become aware of what's new with you. So that's another part of that innovation. So innovation is remaining relevant from a product side. Innovation is building multiple profit centers from a marketing and sales side. Yeah, I love that you've hit on really kind of breaking down the definition of innovation, because I think when people hear innovation, we automatically think technology. We automatically think everybody needs new computers or everybody in the office needs an iPhone or we need this new CRM or whatever. We always think, I think, about it in terms of technology versus really looking at innovation as an opportunity to grow or improve upon anything in your business. Right. So you've given us a couple of examples of how you've helped customers dive a little bit deeper for us into the predictable profits method. You really break it down into three things, build, scale, profit. It can't be that simple. (laughs) Well, I guess at a high end, right? It could be that simple. 
there's a multitude of different ways that we approach businesses depending on what stage of business that they're in. One of the things that we talked about about sustainable growth is really optimization, systemization, and innovation. But then also in my book, The Predictable Profits Playbook, one of the things that we talk about is the importance of positioning, it's the importance of promotion, it's the importance of the product. And at the very core of it, in addition to everything that we've already discussed in today's recording, one thing that very frequently is overlooked is price. And we talk to people all the time that are undercharging for their products and their services. Fundamentally, it could be charging a heck of a lot more than they're doing. It's one of the scariest things for an entrepreneur to raise their prices. But the question that we really need to ask ourselves is what needs to happen in order for us to have the highest price product or the highest price service in the industry and still have people lining up to do business with us? The answer will tell us what we need to do for positioning, have stronger, more compelling positioning in our marketplace. It's going to help us understand from a marketing standpoint, how are we conveying value? Why are we different and unique and better than the competition? When we look at other companies like this, we look at like Apple. Apple released one of the most expensive smartphones that the world had ever seen in 2008 when people were losing their jobs and losing their homes and whatnot. And then all of a sudden they have people lining the streets, sleeping in tents for blocks and blocks down the road. They're not even reading the sales print. Nobody's asking for a deal. Apple's not going on sale and they're willing to spend because it was all about the experience. When I bought my iPhone 11 several years ago, it released at 12 o'clock in the morning Pacific Standard Time or 3 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, 3 a.m., I'm typically deep into sleep, but my wife and I, we were so excited to get our hands in the iPhone 11. We set our alarm for 2.50 in the morning, made sure we were ready to place our order as soon as it went live, didn't read any of the features, any of the sales copy, went right to purchase, and so be it. But now let's look at our traditional marketer and salesperson today. They're so focused on what color button does it need to be? or the hue of the fonts or the images. Or whatever. They're so focused on the little things because they're trying so desperately to get somebody to purchase. What about if they were like Apple? Can you imagine, think about that for a minute. What would need to happen in order for you to compel your customer to set their alarm for quarter or three in the morning to get out of bed and place an order having so much faith in who you are and what you do that they don't even read the sales copy. They just hand you their credit card and go for it. Woo! That one's got my brain reeling. That one right there's got my brain reeling. It's really an important question for people to ask because Apple's making their customers or made their customers at the time go out of their way. How many of us could actually say that our customers would be willing to go out of the way to do business with us, even if we are more expensive than the competition? Mm. what needs to happen to make that happen so food for thought absolutely you know someone who i look up to as a mentor actually had phrased this question to me this way when we were talking through strategy he said how often does apple have a sale never yeah i can't remember the last time they did never 
They don't. And it's to the point of what I never thought deep enough on it to get to what you just said right now, which is they don't have to. The people go out of their way to get the device without ever engaging with any type of their marketing material. So they have no necessity to go on sale. They've created a culture and really just a group of raving fans who are already looking to the new technology that they're going to bring because they've done it consistently and excellently. For sure. There can be some use cases for sales, but also think of a problem. Like, I mean, my wife, we've got three kids. My wife likes to buy all the clothes and stuff for the kids. And there are certain places that she likes to go. And originally she was like, I'm going to go here. All these clothes are on sale. That's awesome. So she comes back, bags and bags. Next time she sees the sale happen, she's like, oh, comes back more clothes because the kids are growing and they outgrow their clothes and so forth. But then another time we see another sale. I say, oh, do you need to go in? Now they have sales all the time. I don't need to buy anything now. Right? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Then my wife was talking about how the kids need some more, whatever, back to school clothes. So do you want me to take you there? And she's like, no, I'm going to wait until it goes on sale because it's not on sale. She's so used to things, them running sales all the time that she knows that if I just wait a week or two, they're going to end up going on sale because if it goes on sale after I buy them and I feel like I overpaid for this and it's going to make me upset and I'm going to get post-purchase dissonance. Mm-hmm. So there's a psychology to this that we have to think about when we're providing discounts for our customers and what type of interaction and experience are they experiencing pre, during, post. I have a client that was so keen on getting this massive, massive agency deal, six-figure agency deal. And it was down to the wire, him and somebody else. And during the interview process, I said, man, I'd really like to work with you, but your price is just far too high. And he says, okay, well, you know, maybe we can work together. And he says, well, the other guy came in at X. And so my client was like, all right, we'll match it. But because he was so quick to match it, the other guy looked at him and goes, well, why didn't you make that your best offer to begin with? And he lost the deal. So even with B2B, like we're expected to give our best offer all the time. If you're quick to negotiate, people start to question the value. Like what's happening here? Yeah. How are you able to cheapen that? Right. Exactly. I mean, again, that's a whole other discussion. We could have a whole other podcast just based on pricing and so forth, but it is something just to be aware of. Yeah. Oh, a good cautionary tale and something to really think about. I mean, definitely our business, we've had businesses prior to this, but I mean, our business is only three years old and it's one of the things that we're constantly mindful of because you have this inclination to kind of want to look around the table and see what everybody else is offering. But then you get into this price matching game and that's not very effective to the point earlier for longevity. You want to separate yourself from the pack so that you're setting the price, not having to compete. And honestly, if your product's valuable enough, you shouldn't have any problem doing that. And so there poses your challenge that you mentioned earlier with what are you doing to get your customer up at 3am to not read the sales copy, but have so much confidence in your product or service that they're lining up for it. You got it. What else are we missing, Charles? You deal with all of these amazing businesses and surely you see consistently some problems that us youngins in the game can avoid. What are some of the common things that you see that people miss when they're trying to create a scalable, profitable business? One thing that comes up a lot, and I'm going to talk more specifically about hiring this time. 
because we've covered okay. a lot. So let's, let's give you some new information. When it comes to building a, a scalable type of organization, a lot of founders, they're in the business of making their own sales. It's, they have founder-led sales teams. And so it's the founder that does all the sales and so forth. And one of the things that I'll share with founders is we should really, at this point, start looking at scaling the sales team because, I mean, let's face it, right now, as opposed to being a business owner, you're a really highly paid salesperson. So we need to be able to scale you out of that position to put you more into a position where you can earn more and build the team. And oftentimes I hear, well, we've tried that before. Well, what does that mean? We've hired somebody before. They just can't close like me. Okay, let's take a look at the process. And what we frequently see as the challenge is they try to hire somebody, but because they don't have a documented, proven sales playbook in place, they look at somebody's resume, they go, okay, they were in the industry for 10 years, they did really well at their last job, they made lots of money, so they can come into my business and they can do the same thing. Founders often forget is that it took them years to figure out how to sell their product, how to handle different objections and so forth. And so without the playbook, what's happening is it's like little kid soccer game. The coach of a little kid soccer game says, okay, come on the field and your goal or your objective is just to get the ball in the goal. And so you get all these kids like all tripping over each other's feet trying to get the ball in the goal. That's typical of a business owner that hired a salesperson without a playbook. They're like, okay, welcome aboard. Now, your goal or your objective is to hit this quota. And there's no strategy. There's none of that. So yeah. to build a founder-led sales team, you want to take all of your unconscious competence that you've built over the years to figure out how I handle objections and so forth and put that into a playbook that makes it so much easier for you to scale because it makes onboarding and scaling easier because you're handing somebody what they need to do. You're going to get results faster. But also you can ensure that you're generating consistent experience, a consistent sales experience, so that you can find more ways to improve, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and from a marketing and sales standpoint, again, it, building multiple spokes in the wheel. So not just relying on one strategy, having multiple different strategies. This is a B2B podcast. So I can share right now that if you're not using inbound and outbound combined, you're doing yourself a massive, massive disservice. Outbound, especially right now in this virtual world, outbound is crushing it, crushing it, crushing it. That's my two cents. That is more than two cents. That has given not only, I'm sure, the audience, but me so much to think about. I know that you and I could talk on this all day, and I want to be respectful of your time. So I just want to ask, concerning the topic of being innovative or phasing out or dying, what's one final thought that you could leave our audience with? Well, we talked about the importance of being relevant, right? So that kind of closes the loop from very early on in our conversation when we talked about inflection points. Some of the questions you can ask yourself and when being relevant is, how do I have to change the message to meet the market? Or do I have to change the market to meet the existing message or change both the message and the market? So it's just being aware and anticipating your client's needs. When you're so focused on understanding, okay, here's Sarah's result, and this is the result that Sarah is looking for, and what else can I do to deliver a greater advantage, a greater result and whatnot, you become so client-obsessed that you begin to anticipate their needs to help them get to a better result. So relevancy is critical. Steve Jobs, he was awesome at that. Nobody 
knocked on his door and said, hey, yo, Steve, you need to create this little device that holds thousands of songs on it and then turn that into a cell phone. And then like nobody could have told him to create the iPad or the iPod. It was for him. He was anticipating his client's needs in order to drive that result. So that's on the product side. On the marketing side, on the innovation component of it, start with understanding what's working right now from what's currently bringing in leads and what's bringing in sales, and then begin to figure out ways that you can create more leverage from those areas. And that's how you can build out a new profit center and a new profit center and a new profit center. You're going to get much further, much faster, more efficiently than if you just decide you're going to chase the latest fad marketing gimmick, whatever it is that comes up. So that's what I would do. So, so good. Charles, after all of this amazing knowledge that you've given us, I know that people are going to want more. Where can people connect with you and where can they learn more from you? Is there a resource that you have that people can really learn more about what Predictable Profits is doing and how you help your clients? Awesome. But I encourage people to go over to predictableprofits.com. Again, that's predictableprofits.com. And we have a a daily coaching video that people can sign up for on the website that will give you deeper insight to a lot of the things that we covered today. There's my book, The Predictable Profits Playbook, which if people are looking to dive a little bit deeper, they can do that. And of course, follow us on our podcast at the Beyond Seven Figures podcast. We will get all of those things linked for you in the show notes for sure so that you guys can have easy access to that. Charles, I just want to give you a huge thank you for taking the time today to share all of your knowledge. It's been so impactful for me. Well, thank you. It's been great for me. I appreciate being here. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website, at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks. This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.